Well, good morning. Let's take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 today. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. I'm going to back up a few verses and read beginning in verse 4 so we kind of catch the, the flow of thought as Paul continues in this letter. We looked at these verses last week, but our text will be 7 through 13. Let me go back and start in verse 4. Romans 7, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, might be become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this word this morning, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive? Lord, would you do a work in us today that shows your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we jumped back into our series in the book of Romans and landed right here in the infamous chapter 7. I say infamous because there's been a lot of chatter about Romans 7 for a long time. In fact, I don't know if this is true. I, didn't, don't, I don't even know how you would check this fact. But some say there's more written in the commentaries and out there, there's more written about Romans 7 than any other chapter in the Bible. Who knows if that's true or not, but some people say it. Uh, point being, there's a lot of discussion that has gone on about Romans chapter 7 particularly in the verses that you'll see next week. That's why I gave it to Jeremy. More controversial next week? <laughs> Pastor Jeremy's going to handle that. And so that's on you, brother. Uh, particularly the, the challenge is, is Paul speaking about uh, his pre-conversion state all the way through chapter 7, or is he talking about the struggle as a Christian? Jeremy will clarify that next week. I'll hint at it this week. Um, if anything else aside, if anything else, Romans 7 shows us this. Romans 7 shows us just how critical the gospel of Jesus Christ is to our life as a Christian. The gospel is, is it's not just the entryway into this beautiful mansion, it's the mansion itself. 
It's not just the, the, it's not just the way to salvation. It's the source of our salvation, and it's the life of who we are in Christ. Yes, the gospel is certainly the way to salvation, but it also sustains us, motivates us in our salvation. When you begin looking at Romans and the structure of Romans, we can say that pretty easily we see this. In Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, this is a series of, of as Paul's writing through this, this section of the letter, he's really highlighting, highlighting what we call sanctification, our growth as a Christian. He's, he's exposing how we came to faith in Christ, and now as we get to 6, 7, and 8, especially in chapter 8, we see this, this, this focus on sanctification and the, specifically that we can't live in victory over the sinful flesh apart from the Holy Spirit. We, we can't fight sin on our own. And right here in the middle of that, in Romans chapter 7, we're reminded through what Paul says here, of just how desperately the gospel of Jesus, how, how it plays a role not just in getting us salvation, but in our salvation itself. In fact, we can kind of summarize Romans 7 in two different ways, or two, two points. Verses 1 through 6, we see what the gospel is, as we, we looked at that last week. We see how, how the gospel, uh, how, how Paul unpacks in these six verses our union with Christ. And that, the, that that's intended to bear fruit. So in verses 1 through 6, we see what the gospel is. And in, chapter, in verses 7 through 25, the rest of the chapter, we see why we need it. The, the, the fact of indwelling sin in our lives. And so our focus today is going to be on verses 7 through 13. As Paul discusses the relationship that the law of God plays in our need for the gospel. Now, I would, I would say this, I think when you look at verses 7 through 13, it seems that Paul is looking back throughout his life and he's, he's highlighting his pre-conversion days in these particular verses. He's looking past tense, he's, he's unpacking his own pre-conversion story, and then in verse 14, the tense of the verb changes from past to present. And so then he begins to talk about the struggle of the Christian life. And so I think that you see that here, and you see that transition, and Jeremy's going to unpack more of that in verses 14 and following next week. But here I want us to see the, really the value that the law plays in our lives. A lot of times as Christians, we, we just kind of overlook the law. Either we give too much attention to it, or we don't give enough attention at all to the law of God. And so in verses 7 through 13, I think that we see primarily how the law pushes us towards Christ by showing us the depth of our problem and our only hope to that problem, which is Jesus. One way that we can put it is, we talked about this last week, the law is good, but it can't save you. The law is a glorious thing. It's good, it's holy, it's righteous, as he says in verse 12, but it can't transform you. It can't change you. It can't make you right with God. And so Paul wants us to see that and how ultimately, if it can't transform you, what good is it? What's the value of the law? Well, I want us to see three particular values today as we look at verses 7 through 13. Three values the law has in our lives, especially in its relationship to sin that makes it valuable to us. Let's look at this together. First, first reason the law is valuable is that God's law exposes sin. God's law exposes sin. Clear in verse 7, Paul 
he's just talked about how we've died to the law, right? That was last week. We talked about our need to be dead to the law. And he says, that's you as a Christian. You're, you've, you've died. You've died to that which held you captive. And then he, he anticipates pushback, right? This is so, Paul does this so often. He's such a well-rounded thinker. And as he's unpacking theology and as he's unpacking truth, he anticipates, as a good teacher would, pushbacks and arguments that might come against him as he's stating these truths. And so he says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? I mean, if, if we so desperately needed to be uh, dead to the law, does that mean that the law is a bad thing in and of itself? Is it sin? And he says, in his phrase he likes to use so often through this section, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he uses the 10th commandment there to give a picture of that. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, Paul says. Now, I have the opportunity a few times a year to do premarital counseling. And one of the questions I always ask the couple is this. I usually ask this early on in in different ways, but I'll usually ask them, I'll look at them and say, what do you think the greatest threat to your marriage will be? And they're usually not expecting that question, and they'll just kind of look at me strange, and they'll sometimes come up with some answers. Uh, They think it's a trick question. It kind of is. But I'll just ask, what's the greatest threat to your marriage? And they'll come up with some answers, and after the answers are given, I'll just simply look at both of them and say, you are the greatest threat to your marriage. Ten years from now, when you come back in here, and you're struggling in your marriage, and you're wanting to blame the other person, fix my spouse, I'm going to look at both of you and say, you're both broken. You are the greatest threat to your marriage. Usually not thinking that, that, thinking at that level. They're still caught up in all of the lovey-dovey stuff, right? They're not thinking about threats to their marriage at that point. But I just want to remind them early on, hey, guess what? You're marrying another sinner. When two sinners get together, all kinds of chaos happens, right? And that's what Paul is basically saying here. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. The other person is not going to be your problem ultimately. The law is not your problem. You're the problem. One of the reasons that we can see that the law is actually a gift from God is because it exposes the problem. Paul has already alluded to this back in chapter 3, verse 20, where he said there, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The the law is what shows us the problem. Now, before we, any of us ever read the Bible, we had no clue just how messed up we are. All right? You thought things were pretty good in your life, and then you start reading God's Word, and you realize wait a minute, God's not, he's not grading on my my curve, he's not grading on my standard, he's actually grading me on his standard. And and I'm in a world of hurts. You know, I mean, before we read the, the Bible, before we were confronted with the fact of God's holiness, we had no idea about the depth of our sin. The old saying is true, isn't it? Ignorance is bliss. I mean, we're just... Going on in life, thinking all is good. Yeah, I might make a few mistakes here and there, but I have no idea just the depths of my own depravity before God. But ignorance doesn't get us off the hook. 
we, we could ask, and, and you, you kind of see Paul hinting at it, and we'll see it in this point and the next point as well. So, so does that mean that people that don't have the law or those who have not read the law somehow are not accountable for their sin? Not at all. God's law simply shows us that we're sinners. Now, about four or five years ago, when we lived up in Hollywood, I, with the help of some folks from church, cut a tree down in my yard. It was great. It was, I think, a disciple now weekend, so we had all these youth come and all this manpower. We got this tree down in no time. The wood chopped up and it was gone in a day, which is, praise God for that. Well, about a week later, Rick Benefield comes to my house during home group, and he marches in, and he proceeded to say, did you cut a tree down this week? And I said, yes. And he said, you know that could be a $10,000 fine, don't you? I said, had no idea. You see, I had no idea there was this thing called the Chesapeake Bay Commission or this critical area. You see, our house was adjacent to another house, which that house is on the water. And nobody's yet measured to this day, but it were probably likely that our tree was within that critical area to the water, within 1,000 feet. Now, I didn't measure. After Rick told me I didn't go measure, nobody else came and measured thankfully. But apparently, some may conclude that this tree was cut down in what's called the critical area. I had no idea. I didn't even, I, I, I didn't even know. I mean, I was dumbfounded. I was like, I didn't even know to even look. I mean, in Tennessee, we just cut down trees, right? We don't have to ask anybody's permission for that. We just cut them down and move on. Now, Things have all ended well, I think. I don't think I'm a fugitive. But here's the point. Was I exempt from the law simply because I was ignorant that that law existed? Not at all. I was in violation, perhaps, and had no idea. And then Mr. Law, Rick, comes along and shows me my violation and exposed my potential law-breaking. I say potential because I'm not convinced. Maybe it was within 1,000 feet. I don't know. Point being this is that's what the law does. It reveals the reality and depths of our sin before God. The law doesn't make sin a sin as much as it clarifies sin as sin. So one of the reasons we should see the law as valuable is because it makes us aware of our sin, which then sets up our need. It shows us our need of divine grace. Charles Hodge, an old theologian, said this about the law. It enlightens conscience and secures its verdict against a multitude of evils, which we should not otherwise have recognized as sin. Brothers and sisters, apart from God's law, we would have no we would have no way of accurately recognizing and accurately defining sin as sin, would we? We would have no way of accurately defining and even judging our own sinfulness before God. Everything would be relative. We would be all kind of going by our own standards. In fact, that's what people do. We see it all the time, don't we? People happily living outside of the law. Everyone just makes up their own law. In our world today, it seems that that the only law that exists is do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you happy. 
Everyone just makes up their own law. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter who you marry. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you're happy. You see, apart from the law, a conscious awareness of God's law, everything seems fine. We're at peace, it seems, happy, there's no guilt. But when the Holy Spirit comes and awakens us to the reality of God's law, we begin to see things for what they truly are. Take Paul's example here that he uses from the 10th commandment about coveting. He uses this particular commandment perhaps because he was struggling, he, he struggled with it, but I think it also shows just the depths and complexity that, the, that, that our sin really is. He, he refers to coveting. If you think about coveting and you compare it to the other Ten Commandments, it's probably the on, only commandment that you can't see. All the other ones, you can probably see some external demonstration of it. And you could argue that there's probably some external realities about coveting, but ultimately it's an internal issue. It's this unbridled desire that desires something that's contrary to God's will. You're longing for something that you don't need or shouldn't have. And the law shows us then, even when he uses this example of coveting, it just shows us that sin is far more complex, far deeper than we could ever fathom. It is an internal issue as much as it is an external issue. He goes on and talks about would have not have known what it meant to covet. I, I would have not thought of those desires I had within me as sin, had, had, had God's law not said, that's sin. And the reason then we, with Paul, can say that the law is good is because had there been no law, we would have continued on in sin without realizing it. Thus, not having a, an, a, a realization of a need for a Savior. Praise God, he gave the law. Praise God, he gave this holy commandment and standard to say, do these things. And when we found ourselves unable to do these things, we realized, what, what hope do I have? We would not have seen the, the need for Christ had God's law never been given to us. It exposes sin. It, it reveals it for what it truly is. But a second value we see about the law is God's law awakens sin. There's a little difference here exposes it awakens sin you look at verses 8 through 10 he says i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness apart from the law sin lies dead i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me paul says here that sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the commandment, thou shalt not covet, through the the law, produced in him all kinds of covetousness. Seemed that when Paul was confronted with the law, you shall not covet, he began coveting all the more and realizing more and more how covetous his heart was. Back to verse 5 of chapter 7, for while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. That's what the law does. It awakens and arouses sin. This suggests here that there are certain desires, sinful desires, that are awakened by the law. Verse 8, it's sin seized an opportunity through the law. Verse 9, sin came and sprang to life through the law. Now, Paul says something here that we don't, we need to be sure that we don't mess up. 
Look at verse 8, the very last sentence, and then in verse 9. He says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Again, I think Paul's looking back to his pre-conversion story, and he, he's not saying that he was alive, meaning okay with God, before the law came. That's not what he's saying. Otherwise, we'd have to say, does, does that mean that when, when the law is not known, that sin is not present? We're not going to be held accountable if we're not aware of God's law? Certainly not. We've got all kinds of explaining to do in Genesis before the law came. Sin taking place and people being held accountable for their sin. Dying. Sin certainly exists where there is no law. But when the law arrives, sin was more clearly defined for what it was. But not only that, sin then hijacks the law and uses it as a base of operations from which to provoke more sin in our lives. When someone is confronted by a law, that which is forbidden becomes more attractive, doesn't it? All of us do this. Now, we moved about a year and a half ago, and it has nothing to do with the tree I cut down. We moved down to off of Willows Road. And one of the frustrations about moving is a year and a half later, we still get the previous owner's mail. Now, I don't know what this guy or lady did, but we get a lot of we get their mail, and a lot of it's from courts, you know, confidential. Do you think I'm ever tempted to open that thing up and look? See what this guy's story is? I have not done it. I may have held it up to a light once. <laughs> Maybe. But when you get things like that, it says, do not open, confidential, keep out. Do you think your immediate response is, okay, I'll just do that? Come on. You're like, hmm. Is that really hot if I touch it? It says, don't touch. It really says, keep out. Uh, there's got to be something in there that, that they're hiding that I just I have to see it. That's what sin does. When, when we're confronted by a law, that which is forbidden becomes more appealing and attractive. That's what, that's what the law does to sin. It arouses sin to action. It awakens it as if it's lying dormant. And then it comes along and, and says, sin is good. At least that's how we dis distort the law. Another way to think about this is, you know, we're getting closer to spring, and, and many of us will soon be hitting the pharmacy for those allergy medications, right? If we've not already done that. Well, just think about it this way. Sin is like our allergy-prone bodies, and the law is like beautiful flowers that come into bloom. Something so amazingly beautiful that takes quite a toll on our bodies. Now, would we say that there's something wrong and deficient with the flowers? Certainly not. They're a beautiful display of God's glory. The problem is in us, which the flowers only magnify and awaken. Pollen. This is how the law functions with sin. There's nothing at all wrong with the law. It's a good and glorious dis display of God's character and God's holiness. The problem is here. Sin is there without the law, but lying dormant so that when we're confronted with the law, it springs into action. 
And it takes, it hijacks and twists the purpose of the law from exposing and condemning sin to actually encouraging and provoking sin. But again, the law is not to blame. Our own sinful hearts are to blame. So God's law, not only does it expose sin, it awakens sin. And then number three, the value of the law. God's law condemns sin. Verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is good. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Friends, not only does the law expose and awaken sin, it makes clear the results for sin, and that is death. You see, the Jewish people had come to believe that life was to be found through the law. The more law we have, the more life we have. And Paul is coming along as a Pharisee, as a Jew, saying actually the opposite is true. The only thing you're going to get through the law is death. And we need to remember that God's law is good. He he affirms that in verse 12, doesn't he? The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's holy because God is holy. It's righteous because God is righteous. It's good because God is good. And so it becomes a standard that reflects the character and nature of God, which in turn becomes a problem for each of us. One of the ways that that I've said this before is that one of our greatest problems is God. Not because he's broken, but because we're not holy. The holiness of God is one of your greatest problems in life. And that's on you and it's on me because he is holy and we're not. And so the law just simply reflects that holy standard and that holy character which becomes a problem for each of us because the sin that we all have is is exposed and awakened and revealed by the law. And not only that, so are the consequences. The law made clear that those who couldn't keep the law deserve to die, deserve judgment, deserve to be condemned. And Paul clearly shows the connection here between the law's exposure of the sin, which ultimately results in death. Now, how does that happen? Look what he says. For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So you see there, the commandment is there. And sin seizes it, hijacks it, takes advantage of it, uses it as a base of operations now. It hijacks the commandment and deceives me. Sin, first of all, deceives us. It uses the commandment. The law is a beachhead from which to launch its attack in our hearts. It takes advantage of the law law in a way. And and that happens in a number of different ways. But one way this happens is by by leading us to be self-righteous. We're deceived. One way that sin deceives us is by, 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 by deceiving us into thinking that somehow we can be acceptable to God because of your, quote-unquote, supposed compliance to the law. Right? It sounds something like this. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I've not killed anybody. I've not done something terrible. 
you know, when I kind of look at my life and, and I consider the right and wrong that I've done, I, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. That's deception. That's sin. Deceiving you, taking advantage of the law and, and tricking you. It, it turns you into some kind of person of self-trust and self-effort, which is only going to destroy you. Or it leads us to question God's law. Similar to how it went down with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The serpent comes along and says, surely God didn't say that. Today, that sounds very similar. Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but surely God didn't mean that for our day. Times have moved on and things that were considered wrong then are certainly acceptable today. After all, we're no longer held accountable. You know, if we're Christians, we've died to the law. And so what we do is we, we use the law almost as a way to justify sin by our, deny, by our denial of it. Take my earlier example. I mean, just think about the tree. If, in fact, I was in violation of the law, we might justify that saying, well, pastor, you would, how would you have known? I mean, you're not guilty of breaking a law. Maybe I'm not, maybe I am. But don't we often treat sin that way? justifying it by our ignorance or by knowing what God's word says and somehow lessening the offense of it. You see, that's what sin does. It, is it deceives us. It will, it will trick us into thinking, well, I've got to somehow earn my way to Christ, earn, or earn my way to heaven, or the law is not that important. You see, sin will either make you believe that you can be right by law-keeping and produce in you a self-righteousness, or it will lead you to question the law altogether and produce in you a different kind of self-righteousness. Both are lies, and that's what sin does to the law. It deceives us, and then number two, it kills us. It kills us. That's what he says in verse 11. It deceived me, and through it killed me. See, as a result, sin will keep us from the gospel by tricking us into thinking that somehow we're okay because we're good or because God's not really that serious about the things that he said in the Old Testament. That's old news. The reality is, though, is that sin is an evil villain that brings death by keeping us from the very true source of life itself. It will keep us from seeing our need for Jesus by deceiving us into thinking that we can either do enough good to get our way to heaven or God's law isn't that important. All of which keeps us from the gospel, which is what we need for life. Friends, the law is like this giant billboard exposing our need for salvation. That's what it does. It exposes who you are, it awakens the sin that's in you, and it condemns you. It will kill you. The law is good, but it cannot save you. And every single one of us have thought that it could at some point in our life. All of us are prone to that. I try to be a good person. If I just go to church enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just pray enough, if I just do, 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 I'm okay. Or if I just 
try not to sin as much. What the law does is it, it shows you just the radical nature of sin. You get in there and you start reading the commandments and you realize just how, how messed up you really are. You get to the end of chapter 7 like Paul does and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I am, I am undone. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who saves me. Friends, we would have never got to Jesus had God's law not been given. You see that? I can't help but quote Galatians. It's kind of like a mini Romans. Galatians verse, chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Simply put, Paul concludes that sin, not the law, is what causes our death. The law is there simply to confirm our guilt. The law is our death certificate, we could say. Yes, this person is dead. Guilty. So until we see our sin for what it truly is, we will not see our need to be saved from it. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and, and you're seeking to strive to earn your way to heaven, this chapter has all kinds of rele relevance for you today. This is what you need to hear. You need to understand, friend, that if you're here trying to earn your way to heaven, you're not going to get there. You're not going to make it. You're not going to see Jesus because you're relying upon your own efforts and that will kill you. Stop striving to earn your way to heaven by doing enough good in your life. Understand that the only way to be brought to heaven is by clinging by faith to Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly and yet he died upon the cross for lawbreakers. This glorious provision that we have in the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus is the one who comes. He keeps that law that we could never keep. And he dies for those who broke the law. So that if we would simply look to him in faith, our sins would be forgiven. We would be clothed in righteousness. God would not look at us any longer as a lawbreaker, but as perfect. Friends, how much more? I mean, you can't get that by yourself. So quit trying to earn your way to salvation. And some of you have been here so long, you hear this week after week, and you're still lost. Quit. Look to Christ. Embrace him in faith and trust him and know that only by that can your sins be forgiven. We preach this. We sing it day and day, week after week after week. Believe it and be freed. Some of you don't feel freedom today because you're clinging to your works. Romans 7 is to say, if you, do, if you do that, you're dead in the water. And worse, you're dead for eternity. We won't see our sin for what it truly is until the law comes and we won't see our Savior. As a result, Romans 7 should not only lead you to trust in Christ, it should lead you to make war against sin. More on that next week. Brothers and sisters, what is the greatest threat to your life? You are. 
And what is the greatest hope in your life? Jesus Christ. You would have knowledge of neither of those things were it not for God's law. You would not know how ruined you are, and you would not know how desperate you need a Savior. Praise God for his law. Praise God for his good and righteous and holy law which comes and exposes the reality of who we are, which awakens even our sin so that we can see ourselves for who we truly are and seals the verdict against our unrighteousness so that we are driven and compelled to look outside of ourselves for salvation and we find it in Jesus Christ the Lord. Friend, the law of God is good, but it cannot save you. But it can tell you about the one, and it can point you to the place where you can be saved. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let the call of this passage on your life be run to Christ and find salvation in him. If you're here today as a Christian, realize afresh today your need for Jesus, that you need him just as much today as the first day in which you believed. And that the motive of your life is a, it's flowing from the gospel of Jesus so that you want to obey God. Not because you want to be saved, but as a Christian, because you have been saved. The law is good, but it cannot save you. Only Christ can save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder that in and of ourselves, we are lost. That we are undone and that we, on our best day, the course of our life, if we were just to take our best day, that that best day would still be so, so far short of what you've called and expected us to be. Father, we know that your law is good and that it has great value. The problem in this world is not your law. The problem is our sin, which the law reveals and shows so clearly. Lord, would you help us today to quit clinging, quit clinging to the law as if it can somehow make us right with you. The temptation to do that is so real, it's so, so apparent in the, in the things that we try to do and say and the way we try to live as if we're cry, trying to earn our way to heaven. Help us to see that and to turn from that, that we can trust in you. Father, as your people, Lord, would you help us to see what we've been saved from. Lord, as we go back through these verses today as Christians, Lord, our heart ought to be humbled all the more that we would see such a wonderful Savior that, that came to such unworthy people like us and plucked us out of our miserable grave that we created on our own and that the law only said we deserved. God, we thank you that you've done that through Jesus Christ. Father, would you help our days to be numbered by increased faithfulness to the one that gave himself for us, that we may live to your glory all our days. Father, thank you for this truth we hear today. Would you continue to shape our hearts by it for your glory and our good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.